0: Hello and welcome to SDP Talks, a series of conversations with academics, authors and public intellectuals. I'm William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. Today my guest is the historian, author and journalist Tim Stanley. We first discuss US politics, the storming of the Capitol Hill, the value divides which affect American society, and the choices available to the new Biden administration. We then considered the UK's own swing states, the Red Wall, And the extent to which Labour and the Conservatives are culturally misaligned with it. Finally, we asked how well social conservatism sits with purism on free trade and economics. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to STP Talks in the first interview of what we hope will be a happier new year. Uh, My guest today is journalist, author and historian Tim Stanley. Welcome Tim. Hello. So um, I'd like to take opportunity really, uh, an opportunity given your uh, background in American politics and academically, to discuss America because events last week on Capitol Hill um, are unprecedented. I mean, American politics has got a history of violent protests at times, but this was really quite unusual. What do you make of last week's
1: events? It was very unusual. Uh, It was shocking. It comes at the end of a year of protest and violence. I, I don't think we should see it necessarily as a one-off in its own right. I think it's part of a, an evolving pattern. And the interesting question is, will Trump leaving office and Joe Biden coming in bring an end to that? Uh, or, will it, or will it actually exacerbate it because Trump will have, been fought, will, will have left office? Um, so I, I, but I think you need to put it in the broader context of American history too. Uh, America is the product of a revolution. Uh, As you said, it it, it does have a a violent insurrectionist history. One thinks of John Brown. Um, One one thinks of uh, uh, some some of the racial violence in the the country's history, the Civil War. Uh, This this is a a country which is well-constituted republic, yes, uh, but violence has always played a role in its politics. And so while what happened last week was uh, deeply troubling and shocking because people see the capital as sort of like the cathedral of American democracy. Nonetheless, uh, it, I think it's, it's part of the scene. It, it's part of what America is and what it's becoming.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly saw it in terms of, you know, so if you look at the 1960s and anyone's familiar with uh, events in Chicago, at the Democratic convention, which uh, certainly from a British point of view would be quite unusual to see that in Blackpool or or Brighton or whatever at the same scale. So it does have precedent, but the, and also yes, obviously this summer has been uh, tumultuous, but there is something sacred about Capitol Hill, isn't it? And and actually for it to be breached and for the international viewer to see it breached, that's something different, isn't it?
1: Yes, uh, it, it speaks also to the vulnerability of American institutions. I've, I've spent a lot of time in Washington DC and you can't get that close to the White House without someone coming over and speaking to you. It's, it's surrounded by fences, it's very hard to get to. The Capitol is pretty well uh, protected as well. Um, if you want to actually get inside one of the chambers, you have to have been invited by your member of Congress. And I think I was told last time I was there that as a foreigner, I essentially couldn't get in at all. Um, so, so, the fact that people could breach that, but, but as I say, it, it sometimes feels as if the executive is very well defended, but the legislative is not, um, and in some ways that it, it does expose that vulnerability. I, I think you're right to to mention the 1960s. That there's a slight um, there's a slight vanity among American conservatives that they often say we don't riot. They say that rioting uh, is a left wing thing. That's Not only is that not historically true, but you could also, say, you could also argue that on the, the far right, the pattern is that of being well armed uh, uh, and of militia-style politics, and essentially that came to Washington, D.C. last week, uh, and something which people always felt was out there but was on the periphery. Again, don't dismiss the violence in American history, just think of the bombing in Oklahoma City, uh, 19, in the 1990s, Timothy McVeigh, far worse things than this have happened, but that sense of the periphery suddenly being in the centre, being in the capital, I think that was what was so shocking about it.
0: Yeah, and I suppose another thing is that the it was it was encouraged to some extent by the president, and that's unusual, because as you say, the executive usually wouldn't have a hand in, in an insurrection of this kind, wouldn't support it in, in, in any way, and, and that's unusual. So let's just trace the origins of that. I mean, I... I was expecting, every sensible person should have been expecting Trump to contest the election should he lose, because he said that, I mean, he he said that, and if you look a little bit further back, uh, I would say all he was doing uh, is reciprocating times 10, uh, 2016, because lots of theories about Russian involvement, and yes, and the Russians certainly did collude and were uh, unhelpful. But a lot of people, I mean, John Gray wrote a, a lovely piece in New Statesman about this, about um, how some liberals just couldn't accept that Trump had won it. So basically, they, they delegitimized his victory, which was, a, you know, a, 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 a no doubt he won in 2016. And all he did was pay them back. And he said he'd pay them back because, you know, he promised to.
1: Yeah, Donald Trump always tells you exactly what he's going to do. Uh, he is the most honest crook in American politics. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, a weird kind of integrity to that, uh, that. People are always saying to me, what's the game plan? What's he thinking about? Is he playing four-dimensional chess? Is he strategic genius? No, not at all. Uh, he has very straightforward goals. I wish to win. I wish to hold on to power. And he pursues them ruthlessly and is quite open about what his strategy is. Uh, you're, you're right. Uh, the 2016 election was contested. Again, let's think about the history, not the first time. Uh, I I think this current phase in America's culture war really, really dates back to the Bill Clinton presidency and really got started in the 2000 election, which was incredibly uh, divisive and very, very close. And since then, it has become almost part of the the tradition of American politics that when you lose, you contest the outcome. And, And what makes it more difficult to break that deadlock is that people don't win by landslides in the way that they used to. You have to go back to 1988 for a straightforward two-party landslide win by a president, George H.W. Bush. Since then, uh, elections have been remarkably close, and because the Electoral College has played a big role uh, in 2000, 2016, and 2020, it's even closer and more open to being contested. And both both sides, in in different ways, uh, accuse the other one of cheating. Republicans classically accuse the Democrats of inventing votes. Democrats classically accuse the Republicans of trying to take votes away. In other words, uh, so, so, so Trump is the match that lights the powder keg, but the powder keg predates Trump and is a, it ha, has become an, an inbuilt feature of two party politics in America and has been uh, dividing the country uh, uh, along su- barely suppressed violent lines for about 20 years. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the certainly uh,
0: Clinton, um, the the amount of vitriol and reaction to Clinton's uh, victory in his two-term presidency, is off the scale for me. I th- always thought Clinton was a rather successful president. I mean, certainly interestingly fiscally conservative, far more than any other uh, president since. Uh, you know, didn't get involved in foreign wars. So actually, you know, um, may not be entirely what you want, but pretty successful. And I thought the the shock jock reaction from the sort of you know the republican hinterland was was totally um without any basis but they are so i mean I, I think let's have a look at the causes because uh you know the, the sort of two line look at or some people's two line look at uh, trump is that you know he's he's liberalism's baby uh and and also people say that um you know he's a symptom and not a cause of anything i think he i think he is a symptom of a very divided society so let's just have a look at the divisions so what the divisions that we're the value divides that we're all having to live with, uh, because America exports this stuff. Um, where would you trace those back to, and how
1: far? Oh my gosh! I, I mean, I, I would go right back to the very beginning. Uh, I, I would say that the foundation of this country is is violence, religion, and politics, and racial politics. i mean, Obviously, the, but in in terms of in recent terms. Um, although I'm reluctant to mark out beginnings and ends of things, because I think that's too straightforward. I I think you're right about Clinton. There's something that happens at the end of the Cold War. And I think among the right, there is a a creeping dread that they had won the battle of the Cold War. They had survived communism, but they had lost the wider cultural battle for the soul of America. And again, race, religion, politics, these things are all tied together in in the American consciousness. Um, And they begin to develop a a myth of the sort of a stab in the back myth that the the, uh, mainstream conservatives have let them down. The idea that liberals uh, now represent a very different country they're trying to impose from on high Um, and and that they are in danger of losing control of the country for good. Uh, There's this idea of a replacement theory that America is developing to the point where it'll be majority, non-majority, if that makes sense. There'll be more liberals... Uh, and their coalitional voting blocks were outnumbered, uh, let, let's be frank, white conservatives. Um, and, so, and so therefore that they have every election is a, is, a, is, is a last stand. Every election is an Alamo to stop this from happening. Um, so I, so I, I really do think it dates back to the end of the Cold War and that, that, that they looked around themselves. And I think the election of Bill Clinton was a trigger for that because they looked at Bill Clinton and they thought this man in a previous decade would be unelectable in terms of his personality and his personal values. Actually, as an outsider, I don't see that at all. I agree with you, perfectly competent president, and actually at at the very least paid lip service to mainstream American ideals and religion. Uh, But to conservatives, the fact that this man could win and could beat a war hero, George H.W. Bush, to them signal that they had lost the country. And, and And I think that's what Trump is all about. He's about people who fear they have lost the country, and if he loses, they lose, Uh, which is, and you you mentioned it yourself that there's this interesting question of to what extent is Trump an answer to liberalism, or is Trump the product of liberalism, and I would say actually in terms of personality and values, he's rather like the Clintons, he's a baby boomer, he's a product of the 60s, Uh, he is thoroughly materialistic, I'm not convinced he even believes in God, Um, he, he really is straight out of that 1960s stable, and it's this grim irony, that uh, he has become the last line in Conservatives' mind between them and losing the Republic. How we ended up in that position is really interesting, uh, highly ironic, and I think could actually do a great deal of damage to the Conservative cause because they really have allied themselves with someone who in many ways embodies what they're supposed to be against, which is the erosion of the constitutional order and of civility in, in public life. Yes, yeah, so you, the, the
0: point about order may be a wedge issue now, because so clearly a lot of people, I mean, proper conservatives, ordinary people trying to build their lives in safe communities are not gonna look at, on what happened on Capitol Hill with any delight at all. And, and, Clint, uh, and, you know, Trump is up to his neck. He's associated with it. He's partly the cause of it, you know, not just the, the you know, further back, but actually the event itself. So I think that'll be interesting. Certainly I, I look at it in terms of uh, liberalisms of various kinds, uh, you know, economic and social, just reaching the point where the, the sort of common life that people hark back to has been eroded. You know, society is very atomized now uh, in the States. The elites have put themselves first uh, corporately and that's undermined the industrial wage and holiday out the middle classes to some extent. So you, you've created uncertainty and insecurity there. And uh, you know, it's the, old, the oldest thing in the book in politics, you know, it's freedom and security. And, And Trump somehow has tried to mobilize people's uh, insecurities. But of course, uh, he is an agramus and he has caused huge division. And and I would argue, because I think the the interesting thing, Tim, see what you think of this, I think some of the things he's talking about are very important, need to be addressed. But I think he's ruined the prospect of addressing them.
1: Yes, yes, I I, I agree with you. Um, I mean, to take one example, which ties together many of these different issues, uh, the question of protecting the industrial base. Um, now, now, Trump's uh, support for tariffs uh, makes him actually a, a clear part of the Republican tradition. Prior to the 1940s and 50s, the Republican Party was the party of the tariff and of protecting industry. They dropped their support for the tariff. Partly because of the Cold War, because they didn't want to undermine the emerging economies uh, of, of the rest of the world and, of, and the Democrat, democratic supporting parts of the world. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s and 80s, the Republicans get on board with economic liberalism and with globalization and free trade. And now, the consequence is that by the time they hit the 1990s, a small group of Republicans have started to notice that that, should, that, that tactical gamble has been a strategic mistake they've actually led to the bleeding out of industrial jobs from their country, undermined their industrial base and hurt the people who really were at the heart of the post-war American dream, which is the, the emerging blue collar uh, American citizen. So a small group of Republicans start to say, actually, we should protect the economy. Now they were so marginalized Uh, There was almost always one candidate in Republican primaries in every election who tried to speak for them. Uh, Back in 2012, I think it was Rick Santorum. There's usually someone who who notices this and talks about it, but it was Trump, by accidentally getting the nomination, accidentally becoming president, who ended up uh, bringing back protectionism into the mainstream. There's a huge voter base of that, and there is a very good economic argument for it, which I'm personally sympathetic. The problem is, is that when it is then applied incompetently, ineptly, um, or when it is associated with nativist politics, it discredits it.
0: Oh, it does. It makes it very difficult. I mean, we we we, I think we've been the only party. I mean, there's only two parties on the left that argue for Brexit ourselves and the uh, and the Communist Party of Great Britain. Uh, we, <laughs> we, we've argued so, so, but we've argued in the, even recently, you know, that actually I would prefer a WTO solution. I think some tar- trade friction would be very good. If you're interested in, if you're seriously interested in reshoring. Supply bases and uh, supply lines and a little bit of import substitution, and also I mean you know even ecologically now i can 't see the, the the good reason to lug uh, fizzy water around the world it 's insane, so we could have looked at that, but it makes it slightly more difficult to argue for it if, if it 's associated with trump, but I, I agree with you I think the there's an extremely strong case for building uh, you know uh, national economies and having a domestic focus in industrial policy and it would work i mean it's there's, there's plenty of historical precedents. I, t- I also agree with your analysis that, uh, you know, powerful nations only turn to international trade if they can control it and if they feel they'll win in it. Uh, you know, so it's insane. I mean, the, the, um, the Eurozone experience, the single market experience is a case in point right on our doorsteps where, uh, you know, every single year, Portugal, Spain, Italy, France, deindustrialized, and every single year the central bit, and Germany and the supply lines close to it uh, gain more of that and have surpluses. So I'm not convinced. I mean, I, th- I, I just think the, I think, you know, uh, global free trade is highly utopian and like a lot of our utopian
1: ideas, not very, not very sensible and probably won't. We'll just there. to add as well, uh, part of the problem with Trumpite support for protectionism is that it, it came from the wrong place. It, it was partly about uh, that. It was almost a, a late 19th century national competition. It's the kind of thing that led to the first world war it didn 't have the best of motivations. It is interesting to see uh, Joe Biden actually has picked up some of the same language, although Democrats tend to do this every time they run and then do nothing about it when they 're in office because the Democratic Party is the party of NAFTA. But he has picked up on some of the, uh, the, some of the language around competing with China, and I suspect that with some of those policies uh, it 's where left wing parties reconcile themselves to them that they 're more likely to happen in the same way it 's when right wing parties reconcile themselves. Uh, to certain left-wing uh, ideas, they're more likely to happen. So I'm, I'm sort of hoping that, um, no, I, I don't. Not not a straightforward protection of the economy, but a a, a, recognized, a recognition of the need to rebalance things. I'm hoping that the the Biden administration is going to pick up on that. If we look at Biden's program, it's interesting because um, y- you might
0: say that having lost major parts of blue-collar America, you know Pittsburgh, and, you know Philly and Cleveland, Ohio, and places like that, he'd go after that vote again. But actually, a lot of the Green New Deal, you know, and his preoccupation with student debt and things isn't necessarily playing to that crowd, is it? Because I would have thought if he really wanted those voters back, he'd, he'd look at um, infrastructure and look at that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Although he's he did okay in some city areas, particularly in the places where he needed to win, uh, but of course he continued to lose uh, rural voters, uh, less well-educated voters, less well-off voters. Trump still did quite well among those people. Um, I, I I agree. Uh, part of the part of the frustrating thing with the Democrats is that the the agenda and the platform sometimes uh, feels as though it is it is framed by uh, by liberal. Um, by by liberal assumptions, by liberal groups, and by a very particular middle-class perception of the world, that the the primary issue is saving the environment. Of course it is, And, and, and the Green New Deal idea could create jobs, could help people, and of course it is across the world the very poorest who are going to be hurt worse by climate change. I'm not against it, but it's partly about framing it, and that sense of, of who matters and who are you speaking to. And it also, it almost feels sometimes as if the Democrats have lost the ability, lost the language to speak to constituent groups that once upon a time they took for granted. And that shift is just as remarkable in America as it is in Britain. Um, and for the left, just as much of a long-term problem. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to, to
0: discuss Britain's case um, uh, in, in a little while with that. But the, certainly I, I think the, there's been an overwhelming case, Well. For the last thirty years, actually, to have a look at infrastructure in the states, no government's really seriously done it, and it's—I think—it exposes um, a fault line in American politics. uh, Due to, I mean, it's the land of the free, but it's—it's—it's—it's—it's free to do whatever you want, and actually, the public realm, I think, is very neglected. I, you know, you—you—you look at this—the physical state of some of the great cities, and uh, they should be ashamed, actually. and I think, you know, there's, you, uh, a Biden administration could at least start to, to, uh, to rebuild public realm and get a bit of uh, pride there. I mean, what do you think about that?
1: I agree entirely. And, and Biden famously is a train fan, and he has put Pete Buttigieg uh, in charge of the transport system. I, I think that that's uh, a hopeful sign because America does have dreadful infrastructure. It's very difficult to get about by train. Uh, the train network is essentially limited to the northeastern corridor, and it's very poor, poorly maintained. Um, And it's also insanely expensive. I remember once I was taking a train from New York down to Washington DC um, and the train uh, stopped and we were told we had stopped in order to pick up people from another train. On the other track, a train had broken down and we simply sat there while people got off that other train crossed over the tracks and got onto ours. I'm sure that's not even legal to do in Britain. It was the most remarkable thing in the most powerful, important country in the world to see something like that happening. They desperately need to fix it. And you're right, it's that tension between private and public. And part of the problem is that the, and this comes back to conservatives, not so much liberals. Conservatives have talked themselves out of loving the public sphere, uh, because they decided government is the bad guy. Um, and because everything is about elevating the individual. Um, Anything which is about putting investment into something which is collectively shared, they're against. And that's partly also to do with geography. You're more likely to care about collective goods when you live in a city because you live on top of each other. When you live way out in a rural area, um, you don't see it that way. Plus, land out there is largely privately rather than collectively owned, um, and where the federal land, where, where the federal government does own land, it's very controversial because it's seen as taking it away from the private owner. But that's a real problem with conservatives. What do conservatives want? They want community, they want order, um, and, and they want people to come together. Well, you can't do that while constantly pushing this individualistic uh, ideology. That's
0: right. I think they, I mean, I, I you know, you know to, to your point about public realm in New York City, the, the subway is a disgrace. I mean, it, I know it moves people around, but to uh, an international visitor, no one from a modern Southeast Asian society is going to go to New York and think anything of it in that respect. I mean, it's really, they become museum pieces. And in a way, it's, it's, it's just a, a case study in decline. I think that's the problem. And, and, and yeah, I think your, the failure to build um, public solidarity I mean, we always, we always ground everything in, in, in nation state, you know, viewpoints or we, we, try to, we try to look at politics in terms of where we, we convene together. So, you know, family, community, nation, because that's us. It's not me. And in the States, I think, yeah, if you look at, say, Obama's attempts to get universal um, health care. I mean, I, I, you know, from all the people I speak to in places like Philly, New York, uh, basically, you know, suburban voters were not going to pay for their health care. You pay your own bills that's the way they, they viewed it. So let's, before we go to Britain, do you, are you optimistic at all? The thing that worries me about, about the Trump situation is that the thing that worries me most is that he's not done. <laughs> I mean, that's, I just find that a little bit terrifying because you want things to heal and you want things to improve. And I don't think you can serve your own country by creating the division that he's, he's done. So whatever, whatever he's doing. And that's what worries me. But do you think these Valley divides can be can be bridged and healed?
1: All but the most hardened Trump supporters right now want him to go away for a bit, at least. Uh, the problem is either that uh, he is able to and will run again in 2024 or that he'll get a proxy to do it or that he'll go through legal jeopardy um, and will end up in court, which again will be a huge thing. Um, I, I suspect actually the administration would probably rather that didn't happen because they, they, they don't want the story being about Donald Trump. And the problem with Donald Trump is that he 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 will not give in. Uh, he he exists to fight and to win, and and his standard his standard for victory it's very it's Roman really. It's not moral. It's whether or not you've won. It's pure power theory. So therefore, he's not going to give up because to give up and to accept defeat is to lose, and therefore it's a moral defeat as as, as much as anything else. I, I'm not I'm not entirely unhopeful though because <clears throat> I'm I'm rare among conservatives for being um. Uh, quite keen on Joe Biden personally. I think he has the right temperament. Uh, it's been a real struggle for him, uh, to, um, for, for him to do what Joe Biden does in Trump's America, uh, which always demands pugilism and fighting. Uh, but I think once Biden firmly has the media's attention, uh, I think he's got the right temperament. Ironically, a more conservative temperament than the Republicans.
0: Yeah, um, he's, I mean, you've got to wish him well in this. Um, And I I think, I mean, what I would worry is does he have the energy actually, Uh, particularly facing down his own uh, left and in particular the woke left who I think are are, are poisonous in their own way. So I'm I'm not sure he has the energy for that. But certainly, you know, if you listen to some of the earlier interviews, you, you may have heard the Frost interview with him sort of 20 odd years ago. Uh, it's pretty pretty close to where we are actually and very communitarian very catholic social thought very good i thought you know and so i don't know what's going to come out and also i I accept the fact that you know the the tensions in the in the democratic party are such that there's you know there's in congress there's a lot of a lot of fairly middle of the road uh biden type um democrats to police and so we, we i suppose we wish them well um just on to, to, to pivot to the UK, um, I think it's, it is interesting. And I and talk about tariffs. I, I joked to someone recently that we, we could do our own cultural tariff really to stop the Americans exporting their pathologies to us. <laughs> I'd quite like a tariff um, to stop some of that. But so let's, let's talk about um, our own, uh, what, what may actually end up being our own swing states, the Red Wall. So what, what, what did you, what's your reading of the, uh, the, the event in the 2019 election? Because it was in British politics uh,
1: quite a pivotal event, wasn't it, that election? It was huge, it, it was very significant. And again, like America, it felt like it was coming at the end of something. It was both a, a break, but it also was a natural conclusion too. Um, and it, it was a, a natural conclusion to a, a crisis <clears throat> on the left rather than the evolution of the right. Uh, let's be honest, up until 2019 the Tory party did not change significantly. It became the party of Brexit uh, but it hadn't really dramatically overhauled its policies or importantly its personalities. Uh, I would still broadly say it is the it is essentially a classical liberal party of privileged people there's no getting away from that dominated by the south. So really it was about the collapse of the left um and uh, the the loss I mean so at, at some point the Labour party um weakened its economic message in order to make it electable down south. But it also, as part of that process, uh, began to lose its cultural connection with the people who it claimed to represent. And a crucial element of democracy, and it's astonishing how many politicians don't understand this because you think they would as they're at the heart of it. A crucial element is the element of representation. The feeling that people look and sound like you. It isn't just about the policy. So even though Jeremy Corbyn shifted the party significantly back to the left, and you could argue, therefore, was more intimately concerned with the material needs of the working class, despite that, he just looked odd. The Labour Party looked strange. Um, and, it, and it started to sound as though it possibly had a bit of contempt uh, for, for people who it ordinarily claimed to represent. Um, So so that was the break, it was was both the economic um, uh, compromise, but it was also that feeling that the party had actually evolved away from people and become this middle-class Southern progressive party, which didn't speak for those people anymore. As I say, I don't regard that as a triumph for the right in the long run, I regard it as a crisis for the left, which the right uh, exploited, and it exploited thanks to a a particularly charismatic leader and a definitive uh, issue of Brexit. I agree. I think that's a very sound analysis.
0: Uh, I spent four brief years in the Conservative Party in between my time in the SDP in the 80s and uh, and now. uh, And I wasn't particularly at home, really, but it was interesting for me because it is no doubt the biggest single group is is, um, a liberal group, basically a sort of free trade liberal group uh, and increasingly now a socially liberal group. But the biggest single group, of course, is pragmatists. Uh, just just uh, fairly, you know, they, they, they wear all this stuff fairly lightly. Um, and I thought the, uh, the, the rotation uh, in 2019 was very interesting. Um, very, very interesting. I think it came a little bit later than I thought. Um, you mentioned Corbyn. I think Corbyn's type of politics isn't actually very well aligned to traditional Labour voters in the Northeast and, and Yorkshire and, and so on. Uh, it's it's very um, it's very Rainbow Coalition type politics, isn't it? I think I'd, I'd look at his politics going back to the '83 uh, manifesto when when this idea of of, of uh, convening some sort of grand coalition of minorities when elections was first um, dreamt up, really. And Peter Shaw quite rightly identified it in that election as a mistake, because actually Labour at its strongest was always about convening a strong majority, emphasising what unites us. And I think that that was a terrible error. I want to ask you about, so I I think it's a cultural rotation, and I agree with you, I think it was more um, a rejection of Labour, in particular their attitude towards Brexit, but also the cultural side, you know, the the extent that white working classes, particularly in the North, feel that Labour hasn't got their backs. And prioritizes other groups, frankly. And I think that's, I think if you politically, if you um upset people culturally, it's in particular, it's not a swing. I mean, a lot of a lot of Labour people now, uh, Kate Ainsley is advising Starmer to get in front of the British flag and things to work family. It, it's not gonna work because he's been saying exactly the opposite for a long time, and the party has, so it's a little bit all, inauthentic, I think. And um so they they still think Labour still think it's a swing situation. They, they don't grasp that actually, uh, let, me, let me know what you think of this, but I think these, these, it's a rotation
1: and they're not, these voters aren't coming back. I just don't know, uh, because I don't know them, I've, I've got to be honest, um, partly because of the Covid restrictions it's been very difficult to get out there and find out what's going on in the country, but also, uh, I'm from Kent, um, so it's very difficult for me to comment upon what, what those areas of the country might be like. Um, What what I would say is I I feel Starmer is partly a bit like Joe Biden cleaning up after Trump. Starmer is a cleanup operation, Uh, and I I think he's doing that very well. Uh, He he is restoring a a sense uh, of pragmatism, order, and Uh, and civility to his party. And he has to fix basic things like the anti-Semitism problem. Uh, And I thought it was very striking that a a few days ago, he wrote an article in my newspaper, the Daily Telegraph arguing against council tax increases. Well, that was like being back in the Brown years. I'm old enough to remember when Labour politicians would come to the Telegraph um, and and have meetings with us and and try and get our readers votes. Um, And that's good because it's competitive and that's what politics should be like. Um, But I I would just throw in, I I was in the Labour Party for a very long time. I I essentially grew up in the Labour Party. Um, I still feel very romantically about it. I even, to some extent, consider myself historically to be a man of the left. To me, what's happened to Labour is very personal and very tragic, Um, although I I accept I have changed as well as the party has changed, and I'm not saying the party should keep up with me. Um, But I do remember way back in 2005, uh, I actually ran for the Labour Party uh, for Parliament, Uh, And I I went campaigning in the general election in uh, the poorest part of the constituency I was running in. Uh, And I was a very innocent, wet behind the ears, middle class kind of kid. Uh, And I was astonished by the fact that almost everyone I met, I met and spoke to wanted to talk about immigration. Some of what they said was out and out racist, not muting that. Some of it was about economic competition. Some of it was just about this sense of things slipping beyond their control. Now, the way to react to that, because at the time I was really torn and slightly upset about that, and in fact, uh, that, 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 that uh, bit of my constituency is in an area which later on would vote for a BNP councillor. So at the time I actually found it very upsetting, I didn't quite know how to process it, and I think that the Labour Party could have gone in one of two ways. It could have said, which some did say, Um, Look, this is just wrong. We think immigration is good and we're going to explain to people why they're wrong and why they should back open borders. That's a legitimate point of view. The alternative, which is what I came around to, was to say, maybe these people have got a material issue that needs addressing. And while we're not going to stop immigration because we shouldn't, and while we are definitively anti-racist, we need to address their concerns and we need to recognize those worries about immigration which are entirely rational and reasonable and labor didn't really go down that route it sort of went for the former and as a consequence it jettisoned a lot of support uh, because it sounded like a moral judgment of those voters and i think that was a big mistake Um, and i understand why they made it because a lot of labor people are for entirely moral reasons sold on open borders and immigration that's great but the consequence is you alienate people for whom it is an issue who it is a problem Um, and, and i think that that's one example of the many ways in which Labour's. Quite, almost quite consciously divorced itself from people who, for generations, had voted
0: for Yeah, uh, th- that's very well put, I, th- I think, and it is a massive, massive issue. Um, David Goodhart wrote in his um, Anywhere, you know, his, wrote to somewhere book, uh, that, you know, the two problems with the new Labour approach to immigration uh, and integration. On mass immigration, they were too enthusiastic. On integration, they were far too indifferent. Uh, so certainly they, they, they didn't even get off first base in terms of trying to talk about the cultural aspects of change because as progressives, any change is good, and if you don't like it, you must, there must be something wrong with you. Uh, but on the economics, I think you're squarely right there because, um, you know, we have tried to point out that if your concern is for um, uh, lower income uh, workers, then uh, mass immigration might not be a very good idea. For lots of reasons. I mean, not only just the plain the supply and demand issue of uh, increasing the supply of something tends to reduce the price of it. I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence on that, published evidence, and um, just the, the 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 overall point that it um, disincentivizes uh, us as a nation to train people, because you know the, again the 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 progressive, the liberal progressive, because I think the Labour Party is liberal progressive basically now. I think the liberal progressive attitude is that, and it doesn't matter where the stuff is from, uh, we're, we're completely disconnected and uprooted from place. So if, if, if Corporation X needs some more inputs, we'll just buy them in and it doesn't really matter. So this, this, this attitude of not caring, complete indifference. You see, I, find, I use the word indifference a lot in relation to the conservatives, um, but I think it's, 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 it's replicated on the other side. I mean, I think the, one of the things the Brexit vote exposed was the uh, lack of um, alignment between parliament and the country. And we saw that a lot in the, in the struggle session uh, after that. So I'm not sure they can, um, they can fix it very well, but my, my basic view of the red wall is that, we're, I mean, no, no one really knows about us, but they, because we're very small, but the, they will, but uh, we're on top of it. And I don't think either the Labour Party or the Conservatives are, are really uh, fit to represent it.
1: before any movement takes off it has to have a solid intellectual foundation it it has to have to go all lenin it it has to have a good analysis of what the problem is before it it can begin to fix it and i I do think there's a there's a problem with personnel uh, in labor and also within the tories as well a lot lot of a lot of tories are saying things right now that they don't believe um, or they have decided they believe without really understanding the, the foundational basis for them Um, I I don't think the Tories are actually instinctively sold, uh, even on things like strong borders, um, let alone on protecting the industrial base or anything like that. I mean, this this is an embarrassment of riches for them. They did not expect to have this majority and they're not entirely sure of how to speak to it. Um, So so I I think with both parties, they they lack that that intellectual base. And the tragedy for Labour is that throughout its history, when it was successful, it wasn't a tension between Methodism and Marxism. It was actually a a, a bringing together of both. It was always the party of both of those things. And it found some way to make the universal particular. Labour was an internationalist party, rightly so, um, but it was also a patriotic party that loved its own people. Um, and it was very into the particular and the peculiar and the provincial. Uh, it was all about Harold Wilson eating HP sauce it, 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 and, and smoking pipes and things like that. It, it, these things seem silly and people from the outside laugh at them and scorn them and think that they are, if anything, beneath them uh, to play at the theater of national politics. But actually the, the best thing I heard about Keir Starmer was that he had bought a field uh, so that his mother could keep donkeys in it. Um, <laughs> We're good for that <laughs> but there was none of that with Jeremy Corbyn no I'm not I don't I mean I'll give
0: credit to Stan for trying I just don't I think it presupposes your Methodism and Marxism uh combination or whatever or blend what we're presupposing here is that there can be a, a synthesis between some of the ideas they need to combine to to win uh electorally I mean Matt Goodwin's brilliant on this on it just in terms of where the value divides are physically and if you you know looking forward uh labor is going to slam it in the university cities and things as a, as a middle class you know um progressive liberal party it will do i think that might make it quite difficult for the lib dems who've got their own <laughs> difficulties in trying to synthesize at least three different um mutually antagonistic ideas so I think they're all over the place i mean i and I, as a social democrat, we're, all we're doing, and it was actually quite old-fashioned for us, but we're arguing that uh, the system isn't working very well, and actually, you know, the worst worst number of political parties you can have is one, and the the. Um you know, two is the next worst
1: I just think that's absolutely tragic, because uh, I, I can't stand the thought of people not being represented, I and mean, it goes back to that, that question, of the crisis of representation, that people don't see themselves on the BBC, that people don't see themselves in films, they don't see themselves in politics, they don't feel that economic decisions are being made uh, in their interests or reflecting their views. Uh, now, I, and, and the problem is whenever you say things like that, people are saying, oh, you're talking about a very narrow demographic and group of people, and sure I am, but there, there are a lot of them Um, and if they are not represented then they drift away to the extremes and and from a small c conservative point of view again if you want to retain order you have to make sure that people feel they have a stake in democracy that they're not being excluded from it And, and a lot of the nuttier movements that have emerged in the last few years of the incel movement and things like that they are being driven by that sense of i have no voice i have no stake in this system
0: and, and no means for participation, Tim, that's the issue. They have no means to convene it. I mean, I, you know, again, I think Peter Hitchens is, was right all along. I mean, he's right about the form but not about the means because he, he's right that there should be a Conservative Party because there are Conservatives, yeah? I mean, you know, he'd want one, but you're, and, he, and he's right that the Conservative Party isn't one and can't be one now. So we're all over the place. And I think it's interesting how you get back to the original uh, criticism of our political system which is that people, you know, which was made by social Democrats in the 80s, which you can't vote honestly. And why not we just, I mean, what we we have a system where these great big monopoly, you know, uh, duopoly parties convene everything in barely coherent blocks. Uh, you know, so you do your horse trading then and then it's put to the electorate. And uh, We would say, no, let's just let people vote honestly, see what happens uh, and do your coalitions afterwards. It's, you know, it's probably a better system. Um, you mentioned social conservatism let's move on to that so, so um our social conservatism in in the proper sense is a is a is a, is a big part of the STB program of thinking and uh and it's basically derived and we combine it with with left-leaning economics and i think that we'll maybe get on to that i think you have to actually um but it's based on on the solid ideas scruden had about love of, of of what you have and an inclination to want to keep hold of it it's, it's in terms of the woke progressive attack and the long, the long range progressive attack on, on foundations, the things that, 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 that basically are the traditional foundations of society, uh, you know, um, religion, the nation state, the family and attachment to place. We, we think they're very important, we need defending. Um, the odd thing is, the question I'd like to ask you is how, why is it that so few I mean, conservatives in the Conservative Party claim to be conservatives, but they advocate this, this really quite strident, purist economic approach, which you can't combine genuine social conservatism with. Would you think that's a fair criticism?
1: I, I, one of the greatest mysteries in politics is why there isn't a party that is both economically progressive and socially conservative now i know you're i know you are it do uh, excuse me for saying that but why why there hasn't been one that's been successful so far or why the the three part the three big parties haven't yet noticed that there is that because if, if you look at most polls you to, to to really crudely summarize it broadly speaking you'll find that controlling borders is popular and so is nationalizing the railways right well, love the NHS, and they also want to protect industries. So it is very strange that no party has tapped into that. Um, And I think part of the reason for that, um, and I'm writing a book about this, is that the the irony is that the tradition we are trying to preserve is itself an anti-tradition tradition, that the West is broadly speaking liberal and has been since about the 17th or 18th centuries. I mean, the people watching this will be outraged at my my very clumsy use of terms, but we have to to summarize it. Uh, and broadly speaking, liberalism is in favor of the individual progress and of ceaseless change. It, it values adaptation and innovation. So the problem with uh, particularly conservative parties is that when they're, they're trying to conserve a particular social or economic consensus, it's the liberal one they're trying to conserve. So Margaret Thatcher was in many ways a radical conservative because what did she want to do? She wanted to turn back socialism and return to the Gladstonian economics of the 19th century. But of course the consequence of radical conservative economics is you destroy the industrial base. You destroy trade unions and you destroy working class tradition. Uh, likewise, uh, socialists uh, wish to preserve Uh, the tradition of free conscience and a free living and all of which which is entirely admirable and I understand but of course the consequence of social liberalism is in sometimes is broken families um, and and decaying and uh, atomization of communities breaking apart so much of what quite often when conservative or Labor parties are being true to themselves, they're actually undermining their own foundation. And there have been a lot of people arguing this for a long time, people like Christopher Lash have argued this, uh, that the, the West is unfortunately committed to a number of principles that undermine the West. And that, that's why it quite often takes people from the slight peripheries of politics like Trump to come forward to try to correct that. Um, and, and Trump is, is, a, is essentially an illiberal liberal, uh, he wants to turn the clock back to an earlier stage in liberalism, he's still essentially a liberal, but he at least has got the wit to see uh, that what the West is currently doing is destroying itself. Um, so I think, I think that's the problem. And I almost see it as unsolvable that <clears throat> I think the West is committed to a certain kind of politics and a certain social consensus, which I think ultimately uh, undermines its own basis. Yeah, it's certainly self-defeating. And
0: I, I always, when I look at the policy combinations that some people come, well, to the left of me and to the right of me uh, put forward, advocate, I mean, I'm always drawn back to the image of the... Uh, of the you know the person soaring off the branch that they're sitting on on the tree i mean that's literally what they're doing and you mentioned the family there i mean one of the i mean as we know a lot of these politics is downstream from culture to some extent And i think one of the problems one of the things we try to do is to to get the foundations right to the thinking right and argue for the culture and the policies will come from that as a logical consequence of them so i just you know i i speak a lot about um the failure of of anyone not i mean obviously the, the left are indifferent to this but the there's no conservative politician makes any case for the family or even for lads needing dads or any of the rest of it they've just completely been um kicked off the field and they don't seem to have the guts to argue the point or the conviction to argue it. that it's just
1: gone you know arguably it's, it's almost an apolitical point uh, i mean it, it comes back to morality and, and there are some people who don't say that partly because they feel uncomfortable about dragging morality into politics But as we, as you get older, you do realize the things that really matter in life are usually not found in a party manifesto. Uh, They usually are things like you need to be responsible and look after your kids, uh, and you need to encourage respect for elders. Um, So, yeah, I I, I agree. It's it's how you translate that into political action. I'm not quite sure. I also throw in that David Goodhart uh, makes the point um, that social conservatism is often not what critics of social conservatism think it is. I mean, actually, I, I'm a religious conservative, really. and uh, my, my politics, my worldview is shaped by Catholicism. The vast majority, when we talk about social conservatism generally, that's not what we're talking about. Um, surveys consistently show that, that people actually have very socially liberal views, including social conservatives. Uh, it, is, it is more about the sort of foundational basics of life, like the maintenance of law and order, the protection uh, uh, of uh, borders and things like that. Um, it's, it's stuff which actually uh, parties, if they took it seriously, mainstream parties shouldn't have any difficulty talking about at all because they're not religious and they're not necessarily controversial.
0: Yeah I mean I I accept David's point and he's made it uh, you know in conversation to us and and in in his writing that yeah I mean if you look at the British social attitude survey the what he calls the great liberalization since the 60s is in there and people no one wants to go back that's for sure but I would I would just say even a basic I mean, where where have we got to that are, a basic defense of the family, even in policy, you know, if you wanted to get a suite of policies which were uh, helpful to family formation. I mean, I've made the point several times that the, you know, 20 or 30 years of very liberal, when when Mrs. Thatcher got into power, that 42% of the public were in council houses, now it's eight, and you've got a little bit more in social housing, but the sector's been wrecked. I, I just, I've put it in conversation to, you know, friends that are, Conservatives say, "Well, how can that possibly assist a sort of natalist or paternalistic uh, view of the family? How? What are you doing if 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 whole generations in London can't do the normal thing uh, and, and 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 hope to, to pair up and marry and have kids? What are you doing?" And they'll and then another think tank in SW1 will. Right leaning think tank will produce a paper about how we're going to solve the housing crisis by through the planning system or brownfield land. I've read it all and it's very boring. And you can't, you, you can't do that. It's like they're at some of their, you know, points about Singapore, you know, very recently in the trade talks, some uh, lazy faire Tories argued for Singapore on terms and I said, well, bring it on. <laughs> they don't know anything about Singapore.
1: No, 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 Singapore runs it, is, is not free market in the way that they think Singapore is free market. It has a sovereign fund, it chooses industries, it wishes to develop, it, it is culturally very socially conservative. Um, I, I, I agree with you entirely, the world that conservatives say they want has to be paid for, probably by conservatives. That's the irony. Um, but Because at the same time, uh, they, they are on God's earth to keep taxes low, uh, they can't actually do that. Uh, I'd also throw in the the Charles Murray point about growing apart, that uh, you have um, an upper middle class which is committed to a certain set of socially liberal ideals. It doesn't actually live. The upper middle classes actually tend uh, to stay together, uh, really invest heavily in their kids. Uh, And of course, just because they live in nice, well-ordered areas, um, they're living a sort of socially conservative dream while preaching social liberalism. Oh, that that that's
0: that's there's such a long tale of that. I mean, it's the 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 history of people, um, in, influential people, culturally influential people, uh, talking liberal and active conservative. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I've got to the stage where even on a micro level in the village I live on, in, I, I I'm I, I rather look at what people do than what they say. Um, that's where we are. I mean, I I there's got to be a future for social conservatism, and I. I we, we aren't crazy, we know this is going to be very difficult for us, but um, we, and we're convinced that if you did a sort of Pepsi test, you know, blind taster of our attitudes and our ideas, they find very, very broad support in the country, um, and I, I just think it's, it is a tall order, but, you know, we, we, we think it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness, and I think, you
1: know, we'll give it a go and see where we go, and um, you know so that's that that is the project you, you absolutely have to have hope partly because as we've said several times already all of these battles are very very old i think you find evidence of them in the 19th century as well um, so, so the, we've gone through them. We've come out the other side. Society doesn't decline down like that. It, it goes up and down like that. It goes through peaks and troughs and corrections. So you, you've got the 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 fifties is preceded by a quite anarchic forties, and then the fifties is then followed by the anarchic sixties. So it goes up and down. So you have to have hope for that reason. Uh, but also, you you cannot write off future generations. It's not fair. And this is a a real sin among social conservatives that really gets on my nerves is social conservatives who say it's over, it's over. I can't stand that because you're doing the very thing that the left does of not thinking about the future generations. When Burke talks about what conservatism is, it's a pact between the generations, between the now and the past, but also the future. So if you say right now, it's over for the future, you're breaking with Burke. It's not helpful at all, nor is it actually right,
0: because the, the, if you look at the data, actually there is a some, it's only flickers, but actually if you look at younger people, not millennials, the, the group slightly younger than them, you, you're seeing a, a wellspring, of blossoming of some quite conservative values, and why not? Because if, if, it, if it's the tradition to kick against your parents and your the older generation's attitudes, the most radical thing you could be now is a trad. So Go for it. And I think, I think there's lots of room for optimism, actually. I think, uh, I, I agree. I think some of the people that have been very alarmed about, you know, wokery just, just suddenly arriving should just read Chesterton or, or Orwell. And then you'd have a proper, um, you know, and, and, and as far as acting, well, I suppose the Bloomsbury group did act quite liberal, didn't they? But anyway, all of that stuff has, has a lot of precedent. Um, so we'll see how we go. Anyway, we'll keep on plugging away and rowing our boat. And, We'll, we'll try and make progress. So um, thanks very much for talking to us and uh, we'll look forward to your columns. It's a pleasure, bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of STP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors, and public intellectuals. If you'd like to be updated when new episodes of STP Talks go live, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Social Democratic Party, do make sure to head over to our website at sdp.org.uk. Thanks for listening.